back in our Roman series. And, uh, well, we never really left it, but I guess I'm in here for the first time in a while. So I'm back in Romans, uh, and we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles and turn there if you have Bibles. Otherwise, uh, the text is going to be here on the screen. And uh, I'll, I'll say up front that this is a, um, this is a hard text. We're going to have three sermons on this text, so we'll just be taking a small portion of it today, although we're going to read all of it. But it's also a text that contains some hard truth. Uh, a text that contains what we might consider offensive truth. Uh, but a, as somebody once said, you know, soft truths actually serve to harden our hearts, but hard truths can actually so- soften our hearts. And so I think that what we're going to see this morning, that the hard truths in Romans 5 are going to be able to challenge us. They're going to be able to push us. They're going to be able to give us capacity for challenge and for growth. So where are we as we come to Romans 5? Well, if you've been here at all, uh, if you've been here one out of ten sermons, you know that Paul has been saying every person is a sinner and that, um, that the, we live in a culture and a world of violence. But now the question comes, why? Where did all this come from? Where did all the brokenness come from? Where did all the famine and the wars come from? Where, why, why, what is going on inside of me? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with me? And how would you answer that question? How would you answer the question? Well, this is how Paul answers it in Romans 5, 12 and uh, following. Hear God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following Many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Let's pray and ask his blessing. Father, this morning um, we are wading into some massively deep waters and into a text that contains uh, truth that's both hard to understand and hard to accept personally. So I pray that you would use this hard heart, this hard truth to soften our hearts. I pray that in showing us our weakness, you might show your strength. In demonstrating our hunger, you might show your ability to fill. So, Father, come and work through your word, the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, So this morning, Paul is asking 
a very profound question. In fact, a universal question, but it's also a very personal one. It's a very human one. What is wrong with the world? Where does all the things that we see come from? We look in the world and see uh, a war going on in Libya and, and disruption in Egypt and famine and tragedy and poverty across the world and brokenness and violence everywhere we look. Where did that come from? We look in our own hearts and we see hearts that are filled with uh, anxiety, filled with, with sadness, brokenness, loneliness, filled with greed, all kinds of things. Where, where do those things come from? What is the origin? Well, Paul's going to give us an answer, and actually I think it'll be fairly offensive. It'll be a hard truth, uh, but we have the opportunity to let the hard truth really do its work of softening uh, the heart. And I also think that the answer Paul gives and the a- answer that Christianity gives is, it may be offensive, but it's the only answer that really fits with our experience and yet remains with a note and a, and a triumph of hope at the same time. So Paul is really going to show us two things here. One, what is the root of sin and evil, the root of injustice? And two, what is the uprooting? What is he going to do about it? So two things this morning. First, the root of sin and evil. And the very first thing he says is that it does have a root. It actually has a beginning. And so this is, we see this in the entrance of sin. So as we look around and say, how did the world get like this? How did my heart get uh, the way it is? Where did it all come from? What, what do we normally do when we think about that? When we think about our problems, we think about the problems in the world, what do we normally do? We start thinking about how to, how to fix that, right? Well, that's the government's fault. You did that. You did that wrong. That's, uh, that's my parents' fault. They didn't do this right. They didn't do, that's my kids' fault. They, so we start blaming all the present circumstances around us. But Paul is actually going to go deeper, further. He's looking way back to the beginning of history. But yes, but that's been going, you know, yeah, we have the problems with the government and with the, each other. And all, but that's been going on for years and years. Where did it all start? And so Paul starts to tell us an ancient story. In fact, the most ancient story uh, of all, the story of Adam and Eve, he begins in verse 12 and says this. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's the one man? Who's the one man? Adam, Adam right. Adam, of course. So Paul's taking us you know, back to the garden here, and he's saying, he's saying something that's actually very unique about in all religions and very... Uh, very profound. He's saying, go back to the garden. There is a time when sin was not. There's a time when pain did not exist. There's a time when death and suffering and brokenness did not happen. I mean, you think about the Garden of Eden and think about the life they lived. It was a land that was full of food, full of great food, but there was no gluttony. There was no diets and weight gain. It was a land that was full of the best of wine, but there was no drunkenness. There was no alcoholism. It was full of great sex, but there was no lust. It was full of great relationship, but there was no conflict. There was no discord. I mean, phenomenal. Imagine what that would actually be like. But of course, what happens? We know from Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they eat the forbidden fruit, right? And when that happens, Paul is saying, when that happened, something radically changed about the entire structure and fabric of creation. Adam and Eve basically broke and ruined and spoiled the world uh, in that moment. And now everything, in a sense, is twisted and distorted. And, uh, and he's saying the fall of mankind, the fall of Adam and Eve, is the origin of all and any and every problem with the world. And what this really means for us is that sin and death and suffering and evil are the most unnatural things in the world. That it is the most unnatural thing. It is completely antithetical to God's good purposes for the world. And that, that really validates, 
any suffering that we experience. That really validates our experience because it says you, you, you feel this because it is so unnatural. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. I know a lot of you are thinking, come on, Jeremy, be realistic. You really, tell, you really mean to tell me you're going to stand up here in front of all these people and say that you think the beginning of all sorrow in the world was some mythical you know, creature named Adam and Eve that somebody just made up. Uh, well, yes, I am saying that, but uh, you know, the objection is that it's just a fairy tale, just a myth. Uh, can't, that can't really be right, but consider, consider the alternative. The alternative to the entrance of sin, that it's completely unnatural, the alternative is it's completely natural, that it's just built into us. It's a product of who we are. It's a product of evolution. In fact, that's what all the evolutionary psychologists will tell you is that war and, uh, and murder and violence and rape and all these things are simply a product of evolution working itself out. Now, so it's the most natural thing in all the world. So if it's the most natural thing, if it's, if it's simply that, what hope is there? Who are you and who am I to undo a million years of evolution? It can't be done. But the Christian message says, sin had an entrance. It had a beginning. It had a starting point. We know this from our own experience, right? When, you, when you're experiencing failure or suffering or futility or, or at a funeral, the, how do you feel inside? Do you feel like, yep, this is p- completely normal. This is, absolutely, this is exactly the way things ought to be. No, everything inside of you is screaming out, this is not right. This is, this is abnormal. This is unnatural. So Paul's answer actually fits with our experience and gives us hope because he says, if sin had an entrance, it can have an exit. If sin and evil injustice had a beginning, it can have an ending. And so he's already pointing us forward to Christ, already pointing us forward to hope when he talks about the entrance of sin. But then he goes further and talks about the effect of sin. What is, what, what, what is the effect? What did sin actually do? When Adam and Eve did that, what actually happened? Well, Paul keeps going here, and the news doesn't get better, at least not yet. He says, as sin came into the world through the one man, Adam, then he says, and death through sin. What was the result of sin? It was death. What was the judgment on sin? It was death. The first effect of sin is actually death. Now, you think back to the Genesis narrative, right, in Genesis 3. And now, now, what else happened? When Adam and Eve sinned, remember God made them a, th- a threat and a promise altogether. He said, for in the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. You will surely die. Did they die that day? Did they, you can shake your head yes or no. Did they die that day? There's a couple of yeses, but mostly no's. No, I mean, they, they lived on, right? They had kids, and they, had, you know, they went home to have Cain and Abel and Seth and other, uh, other kids. So they lived on. So was God just lying? Was God just teasing them? No. He's actually doing something to teach us that death is actually much bigger, much greater, much deeper than simply physical death. Yes, they became subject to physical death, but he is saying they lost something in the fall. There was something lost between mankind and God. There was a separation now between us and God and from God to us and between us and each other and between us and all of creation now. There is this fundamental separation, and he calls it death. It's psychological death, relational death, emotional death, physical death, and spiritual death, all rolled into that one concept of death. It is huge. And here's the bad news that it actually gets worse, Paul says, uh, going on in verse 12. He says, And death spread to all men. 
So Paul says that when Adam sinned, the effect was that something in his heart radically changed. The constitution of his being radically changed. He went from heart loving God to heart in rebellion against God. That fundamentally his nature changed. He didn't just say, oh, I messed up God. He, he literally, something about his constitution and orientation and makeup actually changed. And what Paul is saying is that we are products of Adam. That we are constituted in Adam. That because Adam sinned, we sinned. That he was our um, representative, so to speak, and that he caused a fundamental shift in human nature. And now that just like an oak tree, the acorns fall and they, and they beget more oak trees, now a sinner begets more sinners. And this is the very offensive doctrine in Christianity of original sin, that we are constituted as in Adam, that we are products of Adam, that we are born broken and bent because of what this man, Adam, did so long ago. And I know you're saying, many of you, uh, you know, it's just not, it's not fair. That's not fair. I wasn't there. Adam did that. But what God is saying is that I chose Adam as your representative. And had I put you there or me there, you would have done the same thing or maybe worse. You say, but it's still, still not fair. I don't like, you know, other people making decisions for me, right? Well, this happens all the time. Our, our representatives in Congress, they're our representatives. They, they make a decision to spend money. Who's on the hook for that money? You and me. We're on the hook. And God is saying, Adam was your appointed representative, and you are on the hook for him. You and I are on the hook. We're born with solidarity with him. And I know this is an offensive thing, and it's a hard truth, but it really can soften our hearts if we let it. Now, I know the other objection here is that Listen, we're, I, you might believe in all that stuff. People are fundamentally born you know, crooked, but I think people are born good. People are born basically good. They're basically nice, and somehow they get corrupted along the way. Education, families, institutions, whatever. They, get kind of, you know, they just get kind of jacked up as they, as they, exist, in, as they exist in our culture. And, and really, for 200 years, that's been the prevailing wisdom, right? That's kind of been how our culture has taught us. And uh, tabula rasa, kids are born with a blank slate, right? They're, you just write anything you want to on them. I don't think anybody that said that ever had kids. But, um, <laughs> but I digress. The, uh, another man that believed that was H.G. Was Wells. He thought, we just, we just you know, H.G. Wells, right? The writer, he wrote Time Machine, very famous. He, he thought, we just tweak a couple things, and humans are basically good, and we're just going to take off. And so he wrote this in 1922. I, I misprinted it on there. It's 30, it says 37. It's actually 22. He wrote this, listen to the hope and optimism. Can we doubt that presently our race, he means the human race, will more than realize our boldest imaginations? It will achieve unity and peace. Our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs of his present state, form but the prelude to the things that man has yet to do. Hear the hope and optimism, right? The problem is, is the children he mentions in this passage ended up going to play, not in palaces or gardens, but on the battlefields of World War II. And H.G. Wells got an up-close, personal look at what the human capacity for violence is. And so the year after the war, the very last thing he wrote before he died is this. He said, The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished, 
has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. He came face to face with the reality. It's an offensive truth. It's a hard truth, but with the reality of the fact that we are all born broken and in need of God's grace, one as much as the other. And we we know this from experience too, right? I mean, uh, if you've ever had kids, you you know this. I mean, we have our youngest. Our youngest son is his vocabulary consists of about fifteen words, and two of them are no and mine. Right? I mean, and we didn't, we didn't teach him this. I mean, I don't sit at the dinner table and like start grabbing food off my wife's plate and saying, mine, 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 mine. But he just did that with his brother the other day. I mean, who, he didn't model, have that model for him. It's not part of his environment. You know, he learned when he was six months old just to slap his brother right in the face. And uh, I don't, he's never seen that from me, I don't think. So, I mean, he just, it's just in there. It's just part. I mean, kids come out and their orientation is, All you people are here to serve me. This world revolves around me. I am God, and if I don't get my way, heads are going to roll, right? I mean, I'm going to bring some violence into your life. I'm going to bring some screaming uh, into your life. That's the kid's fundamental, actually, constitution. I mean, it's just in there, right? We know, I mean, when's the last time that you saw, like, a dad get his teenage son? Son, sit down. I'm going to teach you a little lesson here. I know you haven't. You don't know anything about this, so I figured I need to teach you. Now, let me get, let me give you a couple lessons. This is how you objectify a woman. Here's a here's a little instruction manual on lust. Never happened in your life. I've never heard of it, but it's just there. It just it just like comes out of nowhere. That uh, it, it's actually is there. You know, once in the uh, early 1900s, the London Times put on a thing, they, an, kind of an essay thing, and they they wanted to have. And, you know, educated people or famous people write, what, what is the problem with the world? What's the problem with the world? And all these educated people wrote editorials, you know, about the ills of society and the government this and program that and all this kind of thing. And uh, G.K. Chesterton very, very famously wrote his response, Dear sirs and madams, what's the problem with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. What's the problem with the world, he said? I am. The problem is not just out there somewhere. It's actually here. And it's living and breathing and growing. That's the offensive doctrine of original sin. And it's offensive, but it's also empowering because if you think about it, I can't do much about what all is out there and my parents did this. And I I can't do much about that. But what's here, I may be able to do something about. We'll talk about that in a bit. But there's a couple key applications I want to just hit for you here real quickly before we move to the last point. And uh, that comes out of what Chesterton said. What's the problem with the world? I am. I think that is the fundamental. If you are a Christian and you believe in the original sin, the fundamental starting place for all conflict in your life is, what's the problem in this conflict? I am. What's the problem in my marriage? I'm always going, she is. She is the problem. If you, God would fix her, we'd be better. This says, I need to start with the fundamental starting place that I am. I am the problem. And, you know, the reason that... Literally, there's not, a, not enough counseling and therapy to save any couple when the two parties are both entrenched in that position, this position. But when you say, when you have two people that say, you know, I'm the problem, that humility works itself out amazingly uh, quickly. Same thing. What's the problem with my kids? What's the problem with my parents? What's the problem with my boss? Start with, maybe I am. Start there and then go further. Uh, number two, compassion and mercy. 
Why is it that Christians are known as the most angry and judgmental and harsh people in our culture? If we really believed in the doctrine of original sin, we would be the most humble, service-oriented people you can imagine. I mean, how can we be arrogant? How can we be angry? How can we be judgmental when Paul is saying everyone is born in Adam in the same misery and he needs God just, and you need God just as much as he did? How can we be judgmental? So how can we not be going to our neighbor's houses and getting to know them and loving them and serving them and being in life, doing life with them if this is true? And number three, there's a level playing field, right? How do you get to, how do you get to God? You're not getting to God uh, because of your money, because of your socioeconomic status. You can't get to God through your tribe or your, 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 your religion. You, you, can't, you can't get to God through your race because God is saying there's one race, Adam. And that's a race of brokenness and, and, and sin and wrath and condemnation. There's one race and everybody is lost in him. And all those people that I dislike, all those people that I disagree with in the world, all those, uh, those people that I think bad thoughts about in my head, I need Jesus as much as they do. I'm as broken as they are. That's what this is saying. It's a very humbling Thing to take into your life. That's why it's a hard truth, but it will soften your heart. And so lastly, the essence of sin. Um, that was the effect of sin. The essence of sin. What, what is sin really? I mean, most, most of us think that sin is kind of crossing this line, right? I told you to be home at 11. You got home at 11, 15. You broke a law. You, you committed a sin. But Paul actually says the essence of sin goes so much deeper. And so Paul goes to 13 and 14. He starts answering kind of an objection uh, here. So he's going to come back and complete the thought from verse 12 later. But right now he's got a little sidebar. And he says, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like Adam's transgression. Right? So what is he saying there? I know it's kind of complex. But, but basically he's saying that most of us think we can count our way to righteousness. We look at the Ten Commandments and go, well... I pretty, much got those, I pretty much got those down. You know, I didn't cheat on my wife today. I didn't lie and do this and that and the other. So I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a catch, right? Uh, God's lucky to kind of have me on his team. Um, that, that's kind of the fundamental way we look at things. But Paul says before, before Moses or the law or any of that existed, sin was here. Before there was ever a list of do this, don't do this, do this, you know, th- before any of those lists existed, there was sin in the world. See, Adam and Eve, think about it. They didn't violate an ethical command, right? What are they? they ate from a good tree in a good garden. Why would God put that off limits? And why was it so problematic? Because the essence of sin is not just breaking a rule. The essence of sin is fundamentally breaking trust with God. They basically said to God, you cannot be my God. I do not trust you. I will be my own God. And we feel the reverberations of that today. We live in that today. And we do the same things. We say, you know what? I, I'm an American. I can define who I think God is. I will follow God the way that I want to follow him. I will have an image of God in my mind the way that I want to image him. I will give him the part of my life that I want to give him. You're basically saying, I'm God and, you are, and he is not. Or we can bargain with God and say, you know, you can have some of my time but not my money. You can have my church time, but not my other time. You, you, you can, I'll let you mess with my money, but not my sexuality. There's, there, those things are off limits because I'm really the one 
who wants to be, uh, I'm really the one that wants to be God. So sin is so much deeper than that. Why, I mean, why is Muammar Gaddafi holding millions of people hostage in, in Libya right now with a, with a war against, against rebels? Because he, is, he thinks he's God. He's the center of his universe. And everybody else, there's going to be violence and heads are going to roll if anybody tries to challenge that view. That is the essence and the depth of sin. And I, I saw this, an illustration of this the other day because I, I walked up to my neighbor's house and he's a, he's a good friend of mine and he and I do some stuff together. And I walked up, I saw him working out in the yard and I walked up to him, hey Ryan, what are you doing? And he had a shovel and like a brake bar and there's this huge uh, stump in his, in his yard. Last year he took down a tree and this is about a four foot diameter stump. You know, you can't even get your arms around it. And he's out there with a shovel and brake bar and he's digging around the roof. So what are you doing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig this stump out of here. And I was like, you're wasting your time. Well, he, he continues. We talk for a while. I leave. I come back two hours later. Now, there's a much bigger hole. You know, he's like standing down in the hole, and a chainsaw has come on the scene. And, you know, he's been like sawing through some of the roots and different, different things like that. And I said, you know, this is kind of like iceberg, you know, tip of the iceberg. Everything else goes really deep. It's good. You're not going to get it out of there. He, I, I think I can do it. So I leave. A couple hours later, I come back. And now the, the, his 4x4 truck is hooked up to the stump. And he's trying to pull it out of the ground. Well, of course, the strap snaps and, you know, he shoots out in the road. It, it, it just wasn't going to work. And I said, you know, I think you ought to just cover this up and plant some flowers around it and try to make it as pretty as possible because this thing is so deep. It's so pervasive. It's so, it's so in there. It's ne- you know, give it 50 years, it'll rot out of there for you and you'll be fine. But it ain't coming out today. So uh, that, that's what he's doing. And, and I think that it's an illustration of really how sin uh, actually is, how deep it is, how rooted it is, how far down it goes, fundamentally a part of who we are. And, and if you're going to deal with the problem yourself, if you're going to try to deal with that yourself, you're going to be left with the same options that my buddy had, right? And we can, we can cover it up and we can plant flowers around it. We can make it look pretty, right? We can create little lists of do's and don'ts, little lists of holiness codes that say, if you do this and don't do this, then you'll really be in there. And those are really not dealing with the stump, not dealing with the roots. It's really just planting some flowers around the outside and trying to make it look pretty. And I would say, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I just need like kind of a little dose of morality, you know, I need a little little pick-me-up, I just want to kind of become a nicer person in life, then you're in the wrong place. You have the wrong faith. You have the wrong gospel. You're better off in the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble because it's much less costly and time-efficient, all that kind of stuff, to be there than be here. The worst thing that we could do is convince ourselves that this is where all the good people are. This is where all the pretty people are. This is where all the the green trees where all the good people go because Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the unrighteous. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And so we try to plant flowers around our stump, our root, and, and, and manage the sin. But the problem is the Bible says it doesn't command us to manage our sin. It commands us to kill it. And that's why we need a fundamental uprooting, a fundamental someone who can actually come in and take the stump out. And that's what's called new birth. That's what's called supernatural rebirth. That's what's called conversion in scriptures. All the, planting the flowers around, you and I can do that, right? I mean, I, I can manage my sin. I can manage your sin. And, and, you know, think about Christopher Hitchens and other guys that really criticize Christianity. These people think that we need to come to church to learn what it means to be a good person. No, I don't. You can be a good person and be an atheist. You can put flowers around, but you cannot uproot that stump, save, except by the work of Jesus himself. 
And you might think, well, I, could, I don't have to dress it up. I can dig it out. And that's what my neighbor thought. I can dig it out, right? And I know that some of you, uh, you long to see God working in your lives and your hearts. You long to see God changing certain things about, you know, you're filled with anxiety and you just want to be free from that. You're filled with greed or lust or, or some, something like that. And you, wanna, you want God to change. And, and, but instead of him changing, you're in that, you're digging and chainsawing and sweating and tugging and pulling, uh, doing it all in your own effort, all in your own strength. And that stump's not coming out that way. That stump's not coming out that way. And I would ask you, have you become desperate enough, have you become hopeless enough to give up on your own trying, your own self-righteousness, and actually turn to Christ, the one person who can actually take the stump out, roots and all. Uh, John Flavel said this. He said, which is very, I think, a very important quote. He says, We are more able to stop the sun in its course or make rivers run uphill as by our own skill and power to rule and order our own hearts. You hear what he's saying? Are you ready to give up trying to make the river run uphill and turn to Christ? And that's what Paul does at the end of verse 14. He says, Adam was a type, a pattern of the one who is to come. He starts to look from Adam, from the bleakness to Christ. He starts to compare and contrast them. Why would he do that? Why? Because think about on a starry night, the stars shine the brightest. They're the most brilliant. You can see the most of them against the darkest, blackest backdrop, right? When the sky is clear and black. And he's saying, I'm going to paint Christ right up against the backdrop of Adam and all his brokenness and all his sin. And he's saying that two, Adam and Christ have very little in common, but the two things they do have in common is that Adam is the head of one race, one great race of humanity, and, and to all his posterity, he bequeaths something, sin and brokenness and death and condemnation and wrath. And Jesus, on the other hand, is the head of a new, greater humanity, and he bestows, bequeaths something to his posterity to his family and it is joy and holiness and righteousness and goodness and the uprooting of the stump and so he says in verse 18 as one trespass led to condemnation for all men one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men and you might have been saying this whole time no 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 I will stand and fall on my own merit I am my own person there's no way I'm accepting what you're saying But there's good news here because the good news is if you accept the fact that the world can be and you can be broken by the action of one man, you then have the opposite good news that the world can be saved, restored, that you can be made whole by the action of one man. That if God can deal with us representatively in Adam, he can deal with us representatively in Christ. If we can inherit all of Adam's terrible attributes, we can also inherit all of Christ's glory and goodness and joy and hope. That's the hope he's laying before us. He's saying Jesus is the great reverser. He is the one who died and went below the ground, and now he can rip that stump up, roots and all. He is the one that has the strength to do it. That in him, in his life, death, and resurrection, that brokenness itself has been broken and is coming un. Raveled. See, he's saying if you and I can be made sinners in God's sight through the sin of Adam, even though we didn't eat, the, eat, the, eat, eat from the tree, that we can also be made perfect in the sight of God by the action of Christ, even though we didn't climb the tree and we didn't die on the tree. Jesus did. 
And so he holds before us two races, two peoples, to be in Adam and have his attributes, or to be in Christ and receive his perfection. And so to Christians, I would say this morning, what is it that's hindering you from really turning to Christ, from really following with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, from really being all in, from really letting it all ride, from really, really taking your faith seriously? How can we be in Christ but not live for Christ? And to those of you this morning considering faith, non-Christians, I, I would say, what, what are the obstacles? Is your obstacle your pride? Would you be willing to hold on and cling to that pride at the expense of losing Jesus, the one who went to the mat, the one who went the distance in this fight? Is it relational? You say, I can't believe, I don't know, if I believe in Jesus, what, I don't know what so-and-so would say or do. Paul is saying that Jesus came, when he died on the cross, he experienced relational separation like we will never know. Relation, the greatest relationship that ever existed, separation from his father. We can trust him with those relationships. And maybe you're still saying it's just not fair. I just cannot believe it. it's just too unfair. Let me ask you this as a final illustration. Let's suppose that you were abused and neglected and abandoned by your parents. So you were orphaned by your parents and they just left you destitute in a terrible situation. And then you found out though that you had a rich uncle, your dad's older brother, who was wealthy and you not only knew about him, but he knew about you. And he started pursuing you and he said, you can come into my family. You can not just be a servant in the house, you can eat at the table. And not only that, I'm gonna write you into my will. You're gonna be an heir. Everything I have will one day be yours. Would you look at him and say, I can't accept that because I'm still, still too unfair what my parents did to me. No. You would run to that man because he has said, I am the one who can undo all the brokenness that you've experienced in your life. I can run to that man. Friends, that is what Jesus has done. So no matter who you are or what, where you're born or whatever, you were born into Adam and there is nothing that you can do about that. There's nothing you can do about that. But that you can let that be a hard truth that softens your heart to look to Christ who did do something about it, who uprooted the stump, roots and all, and you can flee to him. The doctor just gives the diagnosis not to hurt, but to heal. Would you run to Christ this morning? Let's pray.